welcome to the Pyramid Podcast, where three lads discuss all things English football pyramid. Uh, on this evening's episode, we're going to look at Premier League and FPL review from the weekend, roundup of the EFL action. We'll touch on Yeovil Town's bank holiday doubleheader, uh, and we'll preview what does the Carabao Cup mean to sides as Premier League clubs join it tonight in the second round. I'm your host, Alex Murphy, and once again, I'm joined by Tom Lawrence and Tom Gallagher. Boys, we'll get straight into it. So, fixture of the weekend, Newcastle, Liverpool. I think half hour in, uh, you've got pretty good odds on Liverpool going on to win it. But, Tomo, what do you make of the game? Uh, yeah, was I was really impressed with um, Darwin Nunes' little cameo. Both both those finishes were absolutely world-class and um, sort of a good example of, of the potential that he has after sort of a... Not yeah, yeah. Struggle, struggle last season. Um, missed lots of good chances. Those are the sort of chances that he would miss last season. Um, he's not started the season um, from the start in eleven, um, but he's come in, scored two goals, and and Liverpool sort of sneaky, sneakily having a good start to the season. Um, they're fourteen unbeaten now, so that's carrying on from last season. Jurgen Klopp seems to have Eddie Howe's number. He's actually um, won 11 games in a row in the Premier League against Eddie Howe, um, which is a stat I had no clue even existed, but that's a record for the Premier League. Um, and it showed Liverpool have got a bit of grit, determination about them, potentially showed the sort of the level of mentality that you need to get to, to win those type of games. And Newcastle will obviously need to get to that sort of level if they want to compete with the likes of Liverpool. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a really good game. You'd probably, probably say that Trent probably should have got sent off, even if the first second, even if the first yellow card was a, um, was soft. Um, but there you go. Yeah. You know, when we previewed this game last week, we were saying that like the energy in the stadium, St. James's Park's a cauldron, everyone's up for it. I know this is easy to say in hindsight, but I think that red card almost took that away from them a little bit. I think they were one, they were up, Van Dyke gets sent off, the free kick hits the wall or whatever. And then all of a sudden, Newcastle's, I think, sort of attitude, maybe subconsciously, is like, right, we can settle down, no need to go gung-ho, full-blooded. And the longer and longer that it goes on, suddenly Liverpool are like, right, we've got to have time. Right, we've got to 60 minutes. Right, we've got to a point where they've taken off Isak, Tanali, and I think Gordon at the same time or whatever. And these little checkpoints keep coming off and off and off. And the further you get into a game like that, where your back's against the wall and you're not expected to get anything and it's only 1-0, suddenly it gets nervy for the opposition. And that cauldron of St. James's Park can switch. And the atmosphere can sometimes become a little bit more nervy. And I think Newcastle fell fell to that. And then when you're playing a team like Liverpool, who can bring on someone like Darwin Nunes, who gets two chances and two goals, which he hasn't always done, but has definitely got it in the locker. And I'm definitely someone in the camp of, I think he could be a world-class player, um, given time. These things can happen. And it's gone down as one of those sort of memorable Premier League results, hasn't it, in performances that... I think, ended up looking like a bit of a clock masterclass. He sort of used all of the hysteria to galvanise the team. It showed on the field and they ended up getting a historic three points, really, at St James's Park. Yeah. Is it, do you know what? I thought it was a good example of how like little the margins are between success and failure in the Premier League. Because 
if you look at like, okay, potentially the last 15 minutes, Newcastle didn't play against 10 men well. They overcommitted and clearly got caught on the break twice, which allowed Liverpool those chances and those goals. But actually, for the, the what what was it? Van Dijk got sent off in the 28th minute, I think. So for basically 50 minutes, they were on top of Liverpool, um, creating chances. Almiron had a couple of good... I think he hit the post once and, and Alisson made an absolute world-class save. Um, if one of those goes in... And then there was another one where we can talk about the substitutes. They, they obviously bring off those three players. They brought on Harvey Barnes and Wilson. There was one scenario when Harvey Barnes goes through on goal. All he's got to do is slot in Wilson. Wilson taps in. All of a sudden, it's 2-0. And, you know, new, we're, we're talking about Newcastle was having a massive win. Obviously, battered Villa first game. Did okay against City. Obviously, got um, took the L. And then Liverpool come to them and they win. You think, okay, they're, they're like Champions League contenders again. Maybe even title contenders. So... I thought it was a good example, um, basically, that, that, of the fine margins in the Premier League. And we're talking about a great win for Liverpool. Granted, it is a great win, but it could have so easily gone the other way. Yeah, I, I, I think what you end up looking back on that result with Newcastle is, was that potentially a moment, as you say, Tomo, where they win that game, they go on, Barnes goes through, squares it to Wilson, they go 2-0 up, uh, Alisson doesn't make that sale from Al save from Almiron and suddenly they've got six points from two games. Now they've got three points from two games. I think they go to Brighton next weekend, which is obviously, you know, we'll come on to their result later. That, but potentially Newcastle then are three points from four games going into the international break with a Champions League set of fixtures to come. I thought... I think we might look back on that as quite a big result. The game should have been put to bed. I think Laurie's completely right that the red card almost took all the nerve out of the occasion for Newcastle and they thought they'd go on and, and romp it and the crowd potentially weren't as up as they would be. Um, but yeah, I've got a sneaky suspicion that that would actually be a big, big result for Newcastle. And I think what would have been a six points and a really decent display at the Etihad, albeit coming away with nothing, now is a bit of a shaky start for them. And we, we previewed before the season started that, you know, they've got owners now in, in the Saudis who might not have the biggest patience. Would Eddie Howe potentially be someone where they make a bit of a silly decision, rash decision? I don't think he'll want to lose too many more games, Eddie Howe, if I'm completely honest. No, uh, you've got to remember, though, that Villa, Man City, Newcastle, and if you say they've got Brighton next, that's a tricky start for the season. And like you say, that game yesterday, sorry, that game on Saturday, it's like one of those where hindsight comes into it an awful lot. You, 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 they're down to 10 men for most of the game and you start working backwards to see how you lost the game. And like T-Girl said, on another day, they go and win that 3 or 4 nil. You know, another one of those chances goes in and then it opens up even more towards the end and it's an easy result. So I'm not sure that it's a result in the magnitude that you're talking about in terms of any help, but you're right. He isn't going to want to lose too many more games, certainly in the near future. But if you want to be at the top of the table anyway, and Newcastle have got aspirations to sort of cement themselves into a Champions League place, you don't want to lose the games anyway. you know. And I think the fact that we're even talking about the fact that Newcastle will be gutted that they lost to Newcastle, uh, Liverpool on Saturday shows how far they've come. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, it, it'll be interesting to say to see what comes out and what team he plays at the weekend. I, I don't think they need to be too 
sort of worried about it as a as a team. I think Liverpool are a side who are capable of that. They've got world-class players. Um, it was a bit of an anomaly, but I'll be really interested to see what Eddie Howe does and how he reacts now. Uh, maybe international break will come at a good time for him. Yeah, just, just one thing to add, Snort, before we move on. Yeah. Jason Tindall's shushing Jurgen Klopp. Um, history, uh, he's a bit of a weapon, isn't he? But we quite, we quite like it. Um, that stat about Klopp beating Eddie Howe 11 times in a row, which basically means he's beaten Jason Tindall 11 times in a row. Like, God, you've got to have some bollocks on you to shush Jurgen Klopp in a game like that, ain't you? Yeah. Is, is, it a, is it a definite Tindall shush to Klopp? Because I saw that there was then a picture of Klopp when it went to 2-1 shushing, but then apparently it was an edit. I just wonder whether it's one of those like images that makes itself to Twitter where Tyndall's like shushing and then Klopp's just in the forefront of the photo and everyone's like, look at him doing that to one of the greatest ever managers or are we confirmed Tyndall shushing Jürgen? Well, yeah, I haven't asked Tyndall myself, but <laughs> it does, no. see, does seem right up his up his street to do something like that. Um, but yeah, anyway. just talking about Just talking about like... Klopp having Eddie Howe's number. Let's remember that, what is it, 11 games? Most of those games would have been for Bournemouth or or a bad Newcastle side, yeah. wouldn't they? We're only talking about a season and a half's worth of games where Klopp's got the better of him and it's more of an even playing field. But that is the kind of soundbite and dynamic that can start to, or narrative that can work against Howe. Oh, suddenly you haven't beaten Klopp in 11, but they've only really been competitive rivals haven't they for a short amount of time but those are the sort of things that Eddie Howe's going to get used to and it's going to get more and more difficult he has to navigate his way through Champions League games and stuff like that as well which all the top managers do have to do so he's got that to come um, but I still think he's a safe pair of hands for them and I think he's doing a great job Good stuff right we'll move on from that fixture then boys we'll jump back to Saturday's action uh, I want to start off with the Arsenal-Fulham game uh, I know that we all predicted an Arsenal win and then Tomo, you brought up some stats about Fulham's wins at Arsenal and, and Loro, uh, I think tongue-in-cheek, but maybe not, thought that Fulham could go and get something there. Um, turns out that they did a two-all draw, uh, a massive result, I'd say, for Marco Silva. Um, they had a chance to win it as well with Adama. Loro, come to you first. Uh, what, what's your thinkings on that and what do you think is going on at Arsenal at the minute, if if anything at all? I don't think there's too much t too sinister to read into that in terms of something going on at Arsenal. I think Arteta has overthought it a little bit. I think they started the season well. He had Jesus that had come back, albeit, OK, put him on the bench because he hasn't played, but he played Trossard over Nketiah. I don't understand why he do that. He had a good result at Crystal Palace in the week, and Nketiah played really well. I know he came on and scored, but I think he'll be thinking to himself, why haven't I started the game there? Um, and the problem, and it wasn't tongue-in-cheek before, you know, sometimes, like I said, when it's such a home banker, sometimes you can overthink it. And I know it's easy to say in hindsight now, but I wouldn't have been changing Trossard to come in for Inketia. And I just think Fulham in London, you know, it's the sort of it's the sort of result that can happen if you're a little bit triad with it. And I think Arteta thought, ah, oh, let's bring Trossard in, let's flex our muscles and show how much depth we've got. And all of a sudden, you find yourself two all and. We're going back to a sort of result that we expect from Arsenal two or three years ago. The complete opposite to what we were saying about them last week at Crystal Palace. So that can't happen very often for them because City don't do it very often. And that's who they're going to have to 
be better than to win the league this year. So you get a couple of those, but not many, and they won't be happy that it they won't be happy that it's happened this early on in the season. Yeah, yeah, they I would say Arsenal definitely showed their vulnerability on Saturday. Um and recently and in recent times you'd say Arsenal would get through a game like that, especially when Fulham went down to 10 men and they um well, they were 2-1 up when they went down to 10 men. And you think, right, that's it, they, they'll hold out. Um, but obviously, Paulinho pops up with a goal and he, he got a lot of credit for his performance this weekend. But he's been absolutely different class for Fulham ever since he's come in. I'd be really surprised if a Liverpool, say, don't come in for him before the window shuts on Friday. Um, want to be, yeah, that one, the big one to pick up for, pick up, really, I think, is the whole Gabriella mission. I was and, just going to say that, yeah. And just, what? why have they moved Partey to right-back um, while Gabriel's completely fit? A lot of, you can kind of understand when Timber was fit on the opening day of the season, because you're thinking, right, we've got Timber right-back, I want to move White back into the, the centre-half um, position alongside Saliba. But once that, that injury happens, you just go, right, OK, we'll go back to our back four that we had last season. Um, and I, I wonder whether or not he's fallen out with Arteta and whether or not there could potentially be sort of a move on the cards for Gabriel. Um, my, my understanding on that one, Tombo, is that Arteta's trying to do what sort of Pep and other managers are doing now, which is and with Trent stepping into midfield to make this box midfield. Now, I think in the absence of Zinchenko, who's got the football ability and has done that at City and can do that. And I think they played, is it Jakob Kawar? Is that, apologies if I've said that incorrectly, but in the, in the absence of Zinchenko and Kawar's inability to do that, he's then pushing Partey out to right back to almost step in to do that midfield position but in my mind you're kind of overthinking that a bit if you want him to step into midfield from right back just play him at in centre mid go alongside Rice and Odegaard that probably means Havertz has to drop out or there's question marks about whether Martinelli then starts with Havertz a bit further forward and the money they've paid with Havertz but I just think Arteta is now starting to get to a new challenge for him which he's almost got too many players of the starting ability to fit into that eleven. And he can't quite find the balance of it. Um, I, I think what you might see when they take on United on Sunday is he goes back to maybe White at right back if maybe Gabriel into centre back, uh, or if Tommy Asu's back from suspension, him playing at right back and Partey step into midfield and Havertz not playing him go Partey, Rice, and Odegaard. I think that he might start to think about dropping Havertz. Yeah, see that that already, that fixture, I don't know, is it on Sunday? I think it's Sunday. Um, such a massive game for both clubs because Arsenal's next three, they've got Man United at home, then Everton away, which, I mean, they lost last season and then they've got Tottenham at home, which is another big game. Um, and, but what what I will say, and there's another another example of, of um, fine margins in, in football because they, they basically, they battered Fulham for most parts of the game. Their XG was three compared to Fulham's 0.46. They had 19 shots to their eight, 11 shots on target to Fulham's three. So actually, we're looking at it going, is it a sign they're struggling? Um, and maybe it's just an overreaction. On, on any other day, you'd think, yeah, Arsenal win that game. Um, 
and then it's nine points from nine and no one's sort of talking about the things we're talking about now. Um, and I know, like, I know Arsenal haven't really got into first gear at all at the start of the season, but if you take it into context, I thought they battered Nottingham Forest in the first game, the first 45 minutes. I thought they looked absolutely electric. Okay, slow down in the second half. Forest looked good. The second game against Palace away from home, the red card changes the whole sort of dynamic of the game. They still won that game. And then this game, like on the stats alone, okay, stats aren't everything. We can all agree that, but they should have won. And then it's like, okay, three, three out of three, solid start. So, but yeah, like I say, that, that United game on the weekend, massive for both teams. I just think Arteta's making a rod for his own back there. Like you say, it's fine margins, but Ben White at right back and then Gabriel and Saliba was one of the biggest successes for Arsenal last season. That was one of their biggest strengths and that platform to build on from the back. So I get that you want to evolve and I get that he wants to be like Pep and I get that he wants to change things up and move with the football in times, but don't broken, don't fix what's not broken. And then you're just starting to try and trying to put round holes in square pegs and stuff like that. And it just doesn't work. So I think he's going to have to go back to Ben White at right back, Saliba and Gabriel at centre back pretty quickly and then build from that again. Because otherwise, he's going to keep tinkering around with it for too long. Too many points are going to get dropped. And suddenly, he's going to revert back to it. It's going to be too late. So, I do think you're going to see him revert back to form and what we saw last season sooner rather than later. Because I really don't understand what he's trying to do there. And, like, Ben White is a really good ball-playing defender. He can come into midfield and play whatever these new positions are that Arteta wants, I'm sure. Don't start, oh, we've got Rice in now and Party has to play because he's a big player. No, don't try and fix what's not broken. Go back to what was working last season and build from there. That would be my advice. Not that Mikel should really hinder it. Yeah, but do you know what? It reminds me a little bit of um, Man City last year when they were playing like Bernardo Silva at left back for a period. Like just dicking about like with these little tinkering things. And then like basically the performances weren't quite there. It wasn't fitting. And, and Pep just went back to sort of like, he almost played four centre-backs at the back. A Kanji left back or Ake left back, um, Diaz and Ake or a Kanji, and then obviously he had John Stones right back, and it was like you trust those those defenders first to be good on the ball, but they're solid when you haven't got the ball, and potentially that's what Arteta needs to do in terms of moving. Because Partey, let's be honest, he's not a right back. He needs to. He's a midfielder. So yeah, I I would suggest they would bring they'd bring back in. Gabriel and um, move White out to right back as well. Yeah, just to round that one up, if they do do that, goes back to my point I was making earlier, there is going to be one of those midfield three that needs to to drop out of Odegaard, Rice and Havertz, unless it's just Partey who drops out of the team. I think against Man United, what you might see is Havertz drop out of that side and maybe Trossard out for Inketia. But Martinelli's getting a little bit of flack for his performances as well. So I think some uh, some decisions for... Arteta to make there and as you said Tomo a massive massive game on Sunday between them and United so let's move on to United um bit of a story actually from Saturday I'm still injured from footy so I played golf Saturday morning uh was driving home to to put Gillette on for three o'clock but it was a bit early so I popped over uh my wife's nan's house who was doing some lunch and had a bit of lunch with them so I didn't make it home till about five past three turned on Gillette soccer labs load up my tv and I just saw Manchester United nil, Nottingham Forest two, Wilfred Bolly four. 
And I was like head in hands, stunned by that. I could not believe it. Uh, obviously unable to watch the game uh, with it not being on TV, Tomo, and it being illegal to stream United. Um, so nobody would have been watching that. But from the highlights and from what you've seen, just thoughts on the game? Um, it's a good example of what United are, which is basically easy to play against, but very good when they have the ball. So in terms of the game itself, I thought we over-relied on Bruno to, for creativity. Um, Rashford clearly looks better on the left. Um, the red card incident, for me, I've seen some people say it wasn't a red card for some reason, but for me, that was an absolute stonewall. Um, what to say? We spoke about it on Thursday and we said, no matter what happens in this game, United need to win. And when you're 2-0 down after five minutes, it doesn't matter what happens after that. You just need to win. And so you can't, from that point of, that point of view, you can't really slate United too much. I thought Anthony looked, he had a better performance from the right. Um, but yeah, you just you just don't know because the game state, basically, they're 2-0 up after five minutes. So Forrest themselves basically go, okay, let's shut up shop. So then you've got Anthony, Bruno and Rashford all looking better because basically Forrest are letting United have the ball. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know really what to take from that other than it was just a sort of a microcosm of United in general. We're really easy to play against and we look like we're going to concede lots of goals, but we've also, um, we can also create a lot. Yeah, I thought it was a, br a re brilliant win. Really, really good result for Man United. Like we said before, must win, got the three points, move on. We'll come on to Forrest in a minute because there's one man I want to talk about. But I just think, I've only watched the highlights of the game, but I thought United looked really good. Like going down 2-0 within five minutes, that's almost too bad to even go into too much. That can happen sometimes. Well, the first one was a complete ridiculous goal where the ball was turned over, I think, from a set piece or something, and suddenly it's in the back of the net within 10 seconds. And the second one bounces off Willie Bolly's head. And that sort of thing can happen. That ain't because United are awful. It's just sometimes those moments happen in games, and it's about how you react. And I thought United were good. And I think you probably could have scored more goals. You say you over-rely on Bruno for the creativity, but it looked like he had a good game. He looked like he was really difficult to play against. And you got the three points. So that was really, really important. Great win for United. You can put that behind you now. That won't happen every game. You, you won't always get that 2-0 after five minutes. Quite often you'll be in control. And you just mentioned it there. You said, well, they went 2-0 up and they sat back. And historically, or certainly since Fergie, United have struggled with that scenario. You've struggled to break teams down when they've gone ahead or when they're sitting in for a point or something. So I think that, I think that um, was a really good sign for Man United that they can go into that kind of scenario in a game, come back from it and get the three points that they desperately needed from an outsider's point of view, which hopefully you'll be happy to hear. Yeah, sometimes those type of wins are actually better than just, say if United won that game 3-0 and it was just a, a sort of a procession and Forrest didn't turn up, you just move on to the next one, sort of almost everyone expects it, but sometimes when you go 2-0 down, you've got a bit of ad adversity, then, then coming back and winning 3-2 is almost better for the morale, even though the goal difference isn't as good, et cetera, et cetera. So I do agree with you. Um, what I will say, like what I will say though, look, look, listen, our XG in the league over the opening three games in open play 
So we're third, we've got the third highest XG in open play, which means we're creating loads of chances. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how that converts basically into goals when your, your Hoysland comes in. Um, but we've also faced the fourth highest amount of shots in the league so far, which, so against the team better than Forrest, essentially, I think that might not happen. And because, because Forrest, even when they went 2-0 up, they still had a couple of chances. Anana made a couple of good saves. Um, so yeah, it's, it's early days, but some encouraging signs and, and some not. It's just, um, and like you say, what we spoke about before, it's a massive game against Arsenal at the Emirates on Sunday, and we'll see where bo both those teams are there. Yeah, so do you, we'll obviously go into later in the week a bit more of a, a preview ahead of that game, but seen this evening that Varane's now potentially out for six weeks. Uh, Luke Shaw sounds like he's going to be out towards the end of this calendar year. Malassi is still no further to being back, which kind of lean, leaves me in the position where I'm looking at it with we've got two of our starting back four fit in Wambasaka and Martinez. Uh, I know that we're being linked with left backs, but Varane being out is a bad sign. The midfield obviously still looks vulnerable. There needs to be done some business done there. What are you expecting, Tomo, from United in the transfer market between now and the end of Friday? Um, so I'm, I'm expecting us to get a left back, clearly. Um Ten Hag has purposely not given too much away on Luke Shaw's injury, but the fact that we're in for these left-backs and Cucurella seems to be the the first choice at the minute basically makes me think you are completely right. He will be out for three or four months as opposed to three or four weeks. Um, definitely need a midfielder, especially if McTominay leaves. Um, it looks like McTominay, there's some interest there from Bayern. Which always, which always makes me laugh. If 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 you think if Bayern are interested in McTominay, why why would we sell it? Like, if, do you know what I mean? Like, if if a club like Bayern, who will be going for the Bundesliga and Champions League this year, what why would you sell it? Surely he got he's got something to offer, and he's he's always class for Scotland. So so if the, we can't get a midfielder in, you'd have to think McTominay stays. Um. It's interesting. It's all. It's always just hectic and chaotic with United when it comes to the final days of the window, and I expect nothing, nothing else. Um, but yeah, maybe Cucurella's the one. The the McTominay links in midfield to Bayern Munich. I, I thought the same that they were, they were a little bit of an odd one. But actually, what what I can read into that is that they're willing to let a midfielder go. There's always talk of like Goretzka potentially being off. We've got the um, lad Gravenback who signed from Ajax before, who isn't getting enough game time. He's starting to get worried about his place in the Holland squad for next year. And um, their manager seems to always be having ongoing debates with. Uh, Joshua Kimmich about what his position is with Kimmich coming out and being like, oh, no, no, I'm a six. And Tuchel was like, no, I don't think you are. Um, so I think McTominay might be signed for them to actually be in contention to start as a holding mid, which, you know, we we would say that we'd have Casemiro there, but it looks like we need someone else to sit in there next to it. So it'd be really, really interesting to see if McTominay could go to a, a club like Bayern Munich and suddenly be starting in the hole for them and looking at a world-class level on the Champs League sort of scene with with Harry Kane out there. So um be really interesting. Laura, just before we move on, keen to get your perspective from a non-United fan as well about some of the kind of transfer business that's being 
spoken about. Um, I guess injuries have kind of led to it be a bit of a necessity for left back. But what are your thoughts on the likes of like your Hoybergs and Amrabats and Gravenbach from Bayern Munich being linked for midfield? Um, I think I spoke on the last pod how we've signed kind of Casemiro, Mount, Ericsson in the last year for midfield. So be interested to get an outsider's perspective. I think it's a good sign that you're looking to build with strength in numbers. I think, like you say, you've signed Ericsson, Casemiro and Mount. Well, the first two have been good signings, and I've no doubt they'll continue to be good signings. I think Mount will prove to be an astute signing. And I don't think eyeing up another midfielder now, whether that's um, Hoybier or whether it's Amrabat, should be a negative that like we've signed these players and oh, it hasn't worked, so we've already got to replace them. I think you're just adding to it. Now, if we look back to Wolves a couple of weeks ago, where I think it was quite a common um, agreement that Casemiro looked a little bit leggy and was unable to put out the fires, and that led to United being unable to stem the flow of Wolves' attacks. If you had someone like Hoybier to come in and um, disrupt that, you would have stopped that flow of attack, and that game maybe, I mean, look, you won the game anyway, but it would have been a lot, it looked a lot easier. He's not a well beaten sign in. But I do think it's a sensible signing. And you're not going to go from zero to 100 overnight. I think just doing the right business at the right time is a good sign. And when you've got a manager that you trust a little bit more, which I think you should do in Ericsson Hag compared to maybe Ralph Ragnick or Ole Gunnar Solskjaer that you've had in the last few years, I think maybe we could look back in a few years and think you're in a bit better position now within the league and challenging for the title. And these early steps were necessary to get you navigate you through a season and not have you... Um, susceptible to loads of shots on target at the back end of a game against a Wolves team that you should be beating. So I think Hoybear would be a good signing. The Cucurella one, I think, could be a good signing as well. He obviously had a good season at Brighton and a bad season at Chelsea. The only thing that would worry me about him is I think he fits the profile of a player that could be easily scapegoated at United and put in a box a little bit like Maguire, where a couple of mistakes and suddenly you're a meme on Twitter and you know it's another rubber shining. So that would be one that I think could go either way. Um, but if you need a left back and he's available and you can get him on a good sort of deal, um, I don't see why not. Yeah, I've, I've always had a soft spot for Pierre-Emile Hoysberg. And I'm, I'm sure you boys remember the stag do in Munich. Um, what year was it? 2016? 2015. 2015. We went to the Allianz Arena and I just um, read Pep Confidential, the book about Pep Guardiola's time in Bayern where he spoke highly of a young 18-year-old centre mid coming through um, in Hoysberg. So I've always, I've always I've always had my eye out for him. He's one who's basically been a little bit scapegoated at Tottenham as well, um, basically. But he's a really good, solid pro. Starts for Denmark, like captain material, good leader, potentially not as progressive on the ball as you'd like, as basically Twitter would like, as fans would like. But he seems like a good a good sort of character to have around around the place, especially if he's not going to be starting every game and he's sort of coming in for Casemiro, Casemiro or alongside Casemiro as well. Yeah, I think that's bang on. And I thought you were going to be against the signing, and I'm pleased to hear that you're not. Because you're not buying Hoybeer to be a progressive midfielder. You'd be buying him to either maybe sit with Casemiro when you visit the Etihad or when you visit the Emirates and you can stiffen up that midfield a bit. Or he comes on in the 60th, 70th minute where you're 1-0 up and you want to shore up a bit and put some more legs in there. So, like I said, it's not a signing that he's going to necessarily win you the league or be one of your main creators in midfield. That wouldn't be what he'd be coming in for. But he would be a very good option to have in there to 
like I said, beef up that midfield in maybe the bigger games where you want to be a little bit more um, reluctant to empty midfield. And also to bring him on later on in games when you need to to add some solidarity to the midfield and help yeah. Casemiro. Um, yeah. But another thing is I don't think Casemiro has become an old player overnight. I think that narrative needs to stop because he'll be back playing well soon and everyone will be like, oh, wish we didn't give him the stick at the start of the season. So don't worry too much about that one. But definitely a good option to have in midfield and it doesn't undermine the signings you've already made in the last year, like Ericsson and like Mount. Yeah, and obviously if we do get Hoysberg, um, it will mean I can get out of the cupboard the... Uh... The 2015-2016 away Bayern jersey that I that I bought at the Allianz Arena mega store um, with Hoysberg's uh, name on the back. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Be uh, be interesting to see what happens. I'm quite quite keen to get through to seven o'clock on Sunday actually and see what United squad looks like with the transfer window shut and how we've gone uh, and performed at the Emirates. So. Yeah, I'm refreshing Twitter a lot at the minute and each time seems to be a new Twitter rumour. So I'm just going to have to wait till Friday, I see, and, and see where United end up with. So, right, we'll move on then, boys. Um, Murph, Murph then, you're, not oh, moving, you're, not move, you're not moving on until we speak about Tewo Awaniyi. Oh, sorry, sorry, now, sorry. You did say Forrest. What was, the, what was the record you boys spoke about last week? He scored at the weekend. and Didn't he need a goal to become... Tom had a stat, didn't he? Consecutive yeah. African scorer along with maybe Drogba and Salah? Um, along with Adebayo and Salah, he has now scored in seven consecutive Premier League games, which makes which is an African record. Um, so obviously, he, look, he looks a player. And that is something we spoke about. I know we're sort of banging on about United and Forest now, probably going on a little bit too long, but that is exactly the thing we spoke about in the podcast previous. And... Um, I mean, he he basically looked he looked good again, didn't he? And his goal, albeit I'm not sure what Anana was doing, but yeah, his goal was a sort of um, an example of what we spoke about. Yeah, no, but we were going to move on there. We were about to move on when Tewo had equaled that African consecutive scoring record, and that is the problem. I said this the other day. It seems to take a while for players like that to like earn the trust of whether it's the media or the fans or other clubs, if I'm Tottenham, who I think are in talks with Brennan Johnson at the minute, and I need someone to fill that centre-forward void that Richarlison's struggling to step up to and Harry Kane's left, I'm looking at my man, Tewo Awaniyi, to come in after scoring seven on the bounce for Nottingham Forest. He'd be brilliant for them with Madison and Sonnen Kulazeski and Richarlison and Brennan Johnson around them. And the way that he took that goal, you talk about Anana, but how many strikers do you see go through in that position? Talk about Richarlison, go through one-on-one and fluff their lines or make hard work of it. He waited and he waited. He made, he sat Onana down and then he tucked it in with all the confidence in the world. That boy is a top, top player. And he wasn't as young as I thought he was either. He's 26. So he's, he's in his prime and he's ready for a big move. Tottenham, get your checkbook out. That's a player. Yeah, we spoke about on the last pod about it seems to be a lack of genuine goal scorers forwards in the league, didn't we? And we were all intrigued to see uh, see whether we get the record. Unfortunately, from a United point of view, we did. What was interesting as well with his goal is the two players who are chasing him back. A, I don't know why these are the two that are furthest forward back. But anyway, is Anthony and Rashford, who neither are slouches. Rashford in particular, definitely not. Um and yeah, he just wasn't for catching and then sits Anana down and rolls home at Old Trafford. So yeah, I'll be I'll be really, really surprised if he doesn't get linked with uh with someone. But yeah, top, top prospect. So 
we will now move on unless anyone else wants to cover anything for us. Tomo, nothing, Morgan Gibbs-White or anything like that? Not other than the fact that he looked class, but yeah, move on. Yeah, we'll move on then. Uh, so Brighton-West Ham, uh, Tomo, we managed to watch this at the pub together, actually. And I think we were both looking forward to Evan Ferguson getting his first Premier League start. Bournemouth been averaging four goals a game, uh, hoping for him to get maybe a, a brace to bolster the FPL points. But didn't turn out that way and an impressive win for West Ham. Yeah, it was a bit of a killer for the old FPL ranking this week considering uh, the triple Estupinian, Matoma and uh, Ferguson. Um, but I was I was really impressed with West Ham and it, it sort of that sort of game played into their hands where Moyes and West Ham basically gave up possession for the whole game. They only had 21.5% possession in, in the whole game. They actually only completed 31 passes in the first half, which is just an insane stat. But I thought it, those sort of statistics are, are an example of the challenge that Brighton will face this season because now it's almost like Deserby Ball and Brighton as a club are be becoming sort of over-respected. So clubs like West Ham will go to... Um, the Amex and just sit back and say, come on then, break us down. And if you can't do it, and if um, Ariola or goalkeepers have, a, have an absolute worldie like Ariola did um, on the weekend, then they can be picked apart. And I was impressed. I was impressed again by Bowen, Antonio, um, James Ward-Prowse looks once again like a steal at 30 million. Um but it was a fully deserved win for West Ham, to be honest. They they were they were carving Brighton open on on the counter attack. So yeah, like a great win for West Ham and something to think about for Brighton. Yeah, and Laura, I'll I'll bring you in because bit of credit where it's due. I think you earmarked a few sides who aren't right for Brighton or the type of game that Brighton could split up. Maybe really really kind of up for the big games against the top teams and then just far too strong for some of the lower teams, but I believe that you earmarked West Ham as potentially a bit of a prickly one for them. I did, but credit all round. T-Girls just said it there. That group in the middle, your, your West Ham's, maybe your Palaces, maybe your Brentford's, I'm not sure if it's over-respect, but they are respecting them now. I heard Mikel Antonio speak about this the other day. It must have been before the game. And he said, we've never beaten Brighton. We always go there thinking, oh, it's Brighton. No, we're going to press them. We're going to you know, try and score goals and we're going to go full-blooded. And they always end up beating us. We're not doing that anymore. We're going to go in and treat it like we're playing, maybe not Man City, but the, he actually said the words, they're almost as good on the ball as Man City now. Don't know what's gone on down there, but they're so good. You have to pay them that respect. So Brighton faced that challenge of having to break teams down in a different way. Now, when they're playing the teams, not maybe not rumps of the litter, but the, wor the worser teams, the weaker teams in the league, they're going to be able to do it. And when they're playing the top teams in the league, they're not going to show them so much respect because they've got the top players and £100 million midfields, etc. But those West Hams, those Brentfords, those Palaces, they're the teams that are good and they're also going to have to try and break them down. And when you come up against a team like West Ham, I think we even mentioned Ward Prowse last week, who have got players that can sort of conjure a goal out of nothing. You can come unstuck. So, you know, not to say that we're Nostradamus, but at least we've got something right on here. And 3-1 was probably a bit of a bigger score than I thought. But all these teams in the Prem have quality players in areas of the pitch. And West Ham have Ward-Prowse, they have Antonio, and they have Jarrod Bowen. And unfortunately, um, Brighton fell victim to that on Saturday. Do you know what? I thought? I just thought it was an example as well of um, of sort of two styles co like colliding. 
And, and a style like David Moyes and your Sean Dyches, who it always gets like battered in the media or like by like fellow managers like Pep Guardiola. Always he doesn't really like teams doing that. But I quite I quite enjoy sort of the juxtaposition between the two styles. And the only thing I will say is like Moyes basically gets battered um, if they lose that game and only have twenty one point five percent possession. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and and Ariola made some world class saves. He was actually, well, he was he was on form. So West Ham get uh, Moyes, sorry, gets battered if they go go to Brighton, lose the game with 21.5 percent possession. Um, so it is interesting to sort of see the styles come up against each other. And another thing I will say that's important for West Ham is keeping hold of Antonia. Um, you spoke about him before. Obviously, he was class against Chelsea. He's he was class against Brighton. He's exactly the type of striker who does well in a David Moyes system, where basically you're feeding off scraps, trying to win free kicks, trying to win anything. Basically, he scored again. Um, there's reports this week that he could be Saudi bound. Um, so it'd be interesting if they can keep hold of him. Basically, I know he's 33, and it, like. For a player like him, who is 33, coming to the end of the career, he probably will want to get that Saudi bag, but West Ham need to keep him. Yeah, Tigo, you've used the words juxtaposition and microcosm within the first few minutes of this podcast. So your vocabulary is coming on leaps and, pound, <laughs> leaps and bounds, mate. Well done. But your brother actually made the point when we were speaking in the group chat the other day, Tom, that um, Ariola had an amazing game. Was I take it it was Ariola in goal for West Ham, had an amazing game. Watching the highlights... I thought Evan Ferguson could have had a hat-trick. So, again, five margins could have been different on another day. And if you are going to defend at a place like Yamex, you are going to have to ride your luck at times. Um, on another day, it could have been a different result. Um, I agree about Mikel Antonio. Again, listening to... He's on a podcast, isn't he? I listened to it. And I think at the start of the season, it sounded like he was more edging towards leaving. But I think maybe with the start that West Ham have had and the sort of significant role that he's playing, that might have changed his plans a, year, a little bit. And he might see himself having another year under David Moyes there. And what are they, second in the league, West Ham? Great start for them. We spoke about it last week as well. James Ward-Prowse, what an astute signing. Don't have to go over world ground, but unbelievable. It looks even better now that he's there. It's so obvious um, and a really good player. Yeah, fine, fine margins indeed. And actually, looking back on all of those games, that kind of is a common theme from the week, looking back on the United-Arsenal and Newcastle game, those fine lines, then how a decision can hinge on one moment um, and results then then dictate the the kind of media perception of a side. So we'll move on to another game, um, flit it back to Sunday. That was another one of those results, which was fine margins. Um, Erling Haaland misses a penalty uh, with Tomo triple captain him, which did bring a smile to my face. Most other people just captain in. Then goes on to score. Sheffield United then get back into the game with what looks to be a late equaliser. Uh, and then City go and do what City do. And Rodri pops up and uh, bags a winner. But Tomo, obviously, I, I think I was quite harsh on Sheffield United and thought that was going to be plenty, plenty of goals for City. But didn't turn out that way. Yeah. And as you mentioned... Um, our triple captain Haaland, which um, I think I'd like to stress was a was a clerical error, um, <laughs> an admin error. I didn't want to do that. And when I woke up or when I saw that I triple captained him, I thought, okay, 
was not the worst fixture in the world. And then when he got the penalty in the first half, I thought, well, he's bound to get a hat-trick now. And he missed it. He's He scored 13 um, penalties in a row um, across Dortmund and City and Norway, I think. So, yeah, for him to hit the post, <laughs> it hurt. It definitely hurt. Um, that was just a, an example of the gulf in class between a promoted side and City. Basically, Sheffield United just said, City, have the ball. We've got 11 men behind the... Like, we'll have 11 men in our box, basically. Um, so it's difficult to to break down. City missed some chances. And, and you thought, when they got their equaliser, you thought, could they? Could they? Um, but City... It's an ominous sign that City have done that so early on in the season where they've just gone, right, well, we need a goal. Okay, here you go, Rodri. And it was a world-class finish from him. He's he's obviously up there with the best centre mids in, in the world right now and popping up with very important goals. And I know it's early on in the season, but that was sort of, it must have been a dagger to the heart of your Arsenals and, and whoever's trying to um, challenge City because... They've they've not come out of third. They've not come out of first gear so far, and their three wins from three look like they're just going to walk it again. Yeah, is it ominous, or are, could you look at it another way and think that Crystal Palace dealt with Sheffield United a lot more comfortably than Man City did? And I said this the other day that I think they're coming down towards the rest of the pack rather than going the other way. You're right. You were thinking, could they? Could they? I wish they did because the Premier League is so much more entertaining when City aren't running away with it all the time. And I'm hoping we're not going to spend too long talking about them here because until they start losing or until they, until they start dropping any points, what's the point? Because they're just boringly good, aren't they? They're so um, boring. Like, so boring. Carl Walker, Walker made a, a terrible mistake that led to the goal. And then he just it was like he just flipped a switch of like, oh, right, I'll just run through all of their players and set up a couple of chances then. And Rodri, who just looks like the best midfielder I think I've ever seen. Literally, even going forward now, he looks such a powerful presence in the box. Like he He's someone that's actually... If he can do another four or five years in the Premier, Premier League, he's going to be right up there with your, your Keens and your Vieiras and stuff like that because he can do everything, that monster. And I'd hate to play against him. And I hate watching him because he's too good. Yeah, yeah, what I will say is just a quick stat for you. This was the first time under Pep Guardiola... Um, that City have won their first three games of the season. So, in that in that respect, it is ominous because because they they pretty much win the league at a canter most 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 years. They haven't been at their best, I would say, especially against Newcastle. And and obviously, I mean, they dominated against Sheffield United, but and they got the win, but they weren't at their best. Um, but they've got nine from nine. They're top of the table. It, that's what I mean by ominous. Yeah, I didn't mean to have to put you in a position to justify your uh, your comments on saying it looks ominous. Of course it does. You're absolutely right. I'm just trying to make a little bit of entertainment out of Man City being involved. Because like we all just say, they're boringly good. Well, well done, Pep, nine from nine. Well done. You've done it for the first time and you'll probably win every single game this season. And it will be, like Murph said, a farmer's league. So, Murph, if we can move on as quickly as possible. Yeah, we're going to move on. Uh, we're going to move on. Uh, Burnley versus Aston Villa, guys. So... Uh, the other fixture from Sunday. Uh, Lauro, you mentioned about Ben Chilwell likely to be the first person to score a hat-trick from defence in the Premier League. Uh, ended up not being him who got close to it, ended up being Matty Cash. Um, thoughts on the Villa display? 
It did. And look, Aston Villa are a team that I think quite widely sort of regarded as a team that we all thought were going to do well this year. Good manager on the upon the backdrop of the first six months in English football at Aston Villa for Unai Emery um, after coming back from Villarreal. Look very, very good. They've added good additions to a squad that was already very capable. Good side. Like we, we know they're going to be good. But just listen to this, right? Cause for concern for Burnley, who you know I, I rate quite highly. But this is their first seven games. Not in order, but this is their first seven games. Man City, Tottenham, Man United, Newcastle, Chelsea, and then Villa and Forest. Now, when you look at that in that context, Villa at home suddenly becomes one of the games you need to be getting points from. Because it's gonna they're going to struggle against your Tottenham, your Chelsea, your Newcastle, your Manchester sides. So I think a slight cause for concern that Vinny Company looks to be trying to find out what his best side is, what his best shape is, how they're going to go about it in the Premier League. He did this last year in the Championship, and although they weren't losing games, they drew quite a few at the start. But you can afford to, you can afford that in the Championship. It's a forty-six game season. You're Saturday, Tuesday every week. The Premier League suddenly the games can start tumbling away from you. The points can get away from you. And like I've said before, all of a sudden you get through that run of seven games and you're playing someone like Fulham away. And that suddenly looks like a must win in a really difficult game rather than being a, a game that they can go in with full of confidence. So a little bit worried about the way the cards have fallen for them in terms of their run of fixtures. They had the looting game cancelled. They don't look like they know what their best team is and they're playing really difficult opposition every week. Um, so a little bit worrying I think, for Burnley fans, albeit very early on. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, I think that that loot and cancel game is one that they will be really, really gutted hasn't taken place. That would have been a really good opportunity to get three points, maybe go into that Villa game with the stress off of already got three points. Now with every game that goes by where they don't win, um, you're going to start to, I think, see the pressure ramp up on, on Vincent and his team. So... Yeah, worrying signs for them. Um, Tomo, we're going to move on now. I'm going to bring you in on Bournemouth Spurs. So um, Spurs obviously beat United, uh, looked fairly comfortable in large spells of that game. We're going to Bournemouth. We wondered whether that was a bit of a banana skin. Didn't turn out to be that way. Thoughts on on Spurs? Another impressive display. And just got them playing well. Um, first half, they looked, they looked really, really good. Probably should have been more than one nil up at half time and then the one thing i was most most impressed with about spurs and about Ange was they looked sort of shaky and a little bit spursy in that first 15 20 minutes of the second half Ange made a couple of changes brought on perisic and hoisberg set and settled the game down a bit and then then they managed to get their second goal and they won just and you just you don't sort of associate those comfortable 2-0 away wins with a spurs team ever so, really positive signs under Ange, and we all sort of speak spoken about him. He just seems like a really good, like good bloke. He he went on the uh, TNT Sports um, sofa and spoke for about ten minutes after the game. He just comes across like a normal bloke, not sort of overly media trained, not a lot of um, what's the word ego about him, and he, he seems like someone who you'd love to play for. So. Exciting times for Spurs, and they and if you sort of think back to their time last season under contest, it's completely it's night and day. Like it's so much positivity around the club at the minute, and it's and it's um it's good for Spurs fans. 
yeah, good good result for them. Um, and Laurie, obviously Madison, we didn't know whether he was going to play or not after he left the the United game on crutches. Uh, ended up playing, ended up scoring. Um, he's getting, you know, had got a bit of grief from the Bournemouth fans about uh, not being able to get into the England squad and had a bit of a banter with them. But you expecting him to be called up to the England squad for September fixtures? Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. And it's it's just so good to see a player like that play number 10. Like, that's what Madison is. You want him in the pitch, involved all the time, creating, making runs in behind, setting up chances, scoring goals. Um, and like I said last week, such a good player to watch. And just to echo what Tomo said about Ange Postacoglu, what a great, great man. What a great footballing family man that I would run for a brick wall for. I think I've said that before. Um, and he, he came out last week and he was talking about, like... Um, his time in the Japanese league where he saw Matoma on debut. And I think he, he said he got brushed aside by their team. I think it was Matoma and Hatate. And he was talking about how he was like, who's that player? And then he got told he came out of university and he was like, it changed his thinking as to how he's going to recruit players. You don't have to be so snob, so snobby because Carol Matoma will probably go over a hundred million pound now in England. If someone had taken a chance on a Japanese university student in the first place and maybe um, took the extra time to scout that kind of player, um, they'd be quids in. And he tried to t- sign a book Celtic, but said Brighton were too sharp for him. So ju- I just think that speaks to like his humble side to him. And he's not, like you said, he hasn't got a massive ego. He's brilliant to speak to. You'd love to play for him. You'd love him to be your manager. And you couple that with the performances that have started the season for Spurs. And all of a sudden, it's a cocktail for success, isn't it? And if they add Tewoe with the you to that front line, it could be it could be something very very special. Yeah, it really could. The only the only thing I'll caveat that with is Spurs have started really really well, looking great. The media are all loving Big Ange because he's such a breath of fresh air from Conte. Let's see. He obviously had untold success at Celtic. Really, how will he be with the media? How will he be with his players when he when he's lost a couple of games? If that happens, I think will be the uh, the final tick in the box for Big Ange. Um, right, we'll move on to what we just dis- all described, I think, as 0-0. Didn't give many minutes to at all. Uh, it didn't turn out being that way in the Everton-Wolves game. Um, Everton, again, just couldn't put the ball in the back of the net. Wolves didn't look like they were going to and kind of reminiscent of what the game was going to be. Needed a uh, six-foot-seven striker to come on and miss his header and it come off his back and go into the back of Pickford's net. Um Tomo, come to you. Anything in particular from uh, from that game? Uh, just the fact that it was absolutely heartbreaking as a Jordan Pickford <laughs> owner, and I'll be getting rid of him this weekend. Um, now, just another example of what we've been speaking about. Both teams, um, both teams, have been, like no no problem creating chances. Like Everton have got a, a, for this season, they've had an xG of four point nine five, and they've scored zero goals. It's mental. I know today they've signed Beto from Udinese, who um, I must admit I've never seen play. Um, he scored 10 goals in Serie A last season, so he'll probably get one or two in the Premier League this year. But I can't imagine he'll get the goals to keep them up. I'd be really, really worried. And they've got a new stadium being built for next season. I can see them playing in that new stadium in the Championship, which I think will be funny for all involved except Everton fans. Yeah, and the, the, like I said the other day, they're due a stint in the Championship and they're doing nothing to change my mind. Don't worry about XG. They need to get points on the board. They haven't even had a particularly difficult start. They've had Wolves at home and Fulham at home. 
And now they're on about Awobi going to Fulham, who I think has been one of their best players for the last couple of years. Dire straits. And if I could do my um, predictions again at the start of the season, I'd certainly have them as one of the teams going down. Um, sorry, Everton fans. I just think, think you're in a world of trouble this season. I actually think it could do some good to go down, um, reset and maybe come back up. Yeah, it's it's seriously long for the Toffees. I don't think we need to go into any more details on that. Um, other than Tomo Beto, who scored 10 goals for Udinese last year, would mean he scored more than Hodgland. So I'm hoping your one or two goals based off that form does not ring true for Hodgland as well. <laughs> um, Brentford v Palace. I think there was, I think it was a prediction of a Desmond. I think there was a prediction of a draw. Um, it ended up being that way. Um, not a particularly exciting fixture, not really a result that's uh, too too off the beaten track of what we expected. Tomo, any any sort of additions to that? Not a lot to add, really, apart from, obviously, Kevin Sade's goal was really good. But yeah, just I think one of those games where both teams probably take the one point and move on, like it's a good result for both teams. Um, not a lot to say or to add to that, Murph. No, really isn't a game for that, Lauro. I'll, I'll save you the time. I'll bring you in for Friday night football, actually. So Chelsea v Luton. Uh, we spoke at, at length about FPL and whether Chelsea assets were the right people to come in. Uh, Nico Jackson being a considerable part of that, but ended up being uh, Raz who stole the show in that game. He did, um, but I wouldn't get too carried away because I think 3-0... And one goal from Nicholas Jackson, who I know I said didn't score, but I think it would have been an absolute embarrassment if he hadn't, is par. I think that was a par performance. Because on the face of it, like, for instance, Sterling's first goal, it looked like a nice jinking run through the defence. And I thought my first impression was, wow. And then you look at look back at it, it looks like Luton are left on pause and Chelsea are still playing. And I, look, I listened to three men out of the Luton camp do interviews before the game. Mick Harford like a club legend, ambassador type figure, uh, Chong and the manager, Rob Edwards. And they were all beating on about how they've got their own identity and they're going to keep to their two up front and they're all direct. And we're not many teams play two up front and we do. Well, there's a reason teams don't play two up front in the Premier League and they certainly don't do it when the two up front is Colton Morris and Adebayo because all you're doing is leaving a massive gap in the middle of the pitch for Marvellous Nakamba to try and cover, especially when the two players in front of him are Ross Barkley and Chong. I mean... I, Honestly, I think on another day, if they had played Man City on Friday, it could have been 12 30 nil. There's no disrespect. I just think it's a really, really naive to set up in a Premier League game, particularly when you're going away to one of the big sides. And I think they're going to have to tinker with that quite quickly and become a team that's harder to beat, rather than thinking they can shove two up front and nick goals everywhere, because that ain't going to happen. Yeah, I think the thing is, though, Luton know what they are. They know their identity. And I don't really think... like They, they got promoted last season with one of the... Um, the smallest budgets in the championship. So then they they come to the Prem and obviously they're going to have the smallest budget. Um, a good example of that, well, I think Sky Sports put a stat up midway through the game and it was like, during the Premier League years, Chelsea had spent three billion quid and Luton had spent 30 million. So I get what you're saying. They don't look good enough, but to go to Stamford Bridge, you're not, you're not expecting much. The, the way... They're going to get their points this year. We'll have to be at Kenilworth Road, which obviously isn't ready yet, which hasn't helped. Um, but yeah, standard, like you say, par win for Chelsea. 
Malo Gusto impressed. Um, two assists for FPL. I think he's only four million, maybe four point one now. Um, Sterling looks back to his best. I know he probably needs to play a couple more games at that level to to officially say he's back to his best, but he looks good again. So encouraging signs for Chelsea. But yeah, that's sort of that is an expected result on Friday night. Yeah, I think Chelsea should have won quite a bit more handsomely. Um, I was thinking of bringing Nico Jackson in, but I think Laura is right in regards to maybe City would have scored multiple, multiple more goals there and actually maybe just still showed Chelsea aren't quite that clinical. But yeah, it's not looking good for Luton. Um, again, later in the week, we'll be previewing the Premier League action. I think that they've got Friday night football against West Ham on Friday, which now suddenly looks must-win for them. It's probably one of those fixtures they need to win, but West Ham bang in form. So, yeah, I've I've put a tweet out that they'll finish on less points than Derby and have the lowest ever in Premier League, So, uh, which I'm sure Rob Edwards will be gutted about. But, yeah. Boys, that's it for Premier League. Uh, we'll move on to the Championship. I think only one place to start, really, after discussing it. Loro leads, ending the streak, ending Ipswich's streak. 4-3, win a seven-goal thriller. And I think all your front men doing the business, including new signing Joel Pirro. Yeah, well, you boys know me. I'm not biased with my footballing opinions. I haven't been optimistic about Leeds' fixtures so far this, this season, like Daniel Farker said, or just is going to be very, very hard. But try this one for balance. Leeds United are going to win the championship at an absolute canter. That front three, I mean, Rutter played as well at the weekend, but the front three of Willy Nonto, Luis Sinistera and new man Joel Pirro, I think is the best front three I've ever seen on paper in the championship. Can they play together? Well, we went to Portman Road at the weekend and won 4-3 and blew Ipswich away that haven't had a team beat them since February. So I know Leicester have won their first four. But Leeds are coming and we're going to be in that title race. And with Daniel Farga behind us, who's won that league a couple of times before, for me, we're going to be champions and we're going to be in the Premier League again next season. And I'm not getting carried away. That team is far too strong. Oh, no, it is really exciting as a Leeds fan. Like the, the How long has it been since Nonto and Sinistiera stopped training? Uh, and it felt like those, if those boys sort of got their moves it would, might be a bit of a slog for Leeds. But the fact that they're going to stay and you've obviously added Perot to the mix, it's like, yeah, you, you're completely right. That front three, I think Nonto, Nonto's a Premier League player, basically. Um, and he was your best player last, last year. So it, it's exciting times for Leeds. And I definitely can see a promotion push. And that's a really good result. And like you say, Farker, once he gets past, <laughs> or just, or just, um, you'll you'll probably see you um getting a few more positive results and and you get loads of you'll get loads of goals with those with those front three. And we're forgetting I don't know I know Bamford's injured again and he is always injured, but if he can stay fit, he's too good for the championship as well. Yeah, of course he is. And or just ends on Thursday. <laughs> and we've got bottom of the league, pointless Sheffield Wednesday to play at home on Saturday. So I think get your betting slips out and look at a record scoreline there. Um, but you're quite right. Willie Nanto, Italian international. Luis Sinistera, international. Joel Pirro, no one scored more than him. In fact, he scored more goals than anyone since August 2021. I mean, what more? I mean, we're linked with some good players now. And you're right. Sinistera and Willie Nanto, they played the first game against Cardiff at home. Then both came out of training, slightly different reasons. 
and the leadership and management that Daniel Farker showed saying, no, 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 go and train with the under-23s or whatever. You're not being around my side. You're not being anywhere near it unless you want to play for Leeds United. And all of a sudden, they both put their hands up and gone, all right, Gaffer, we want to play for you and we want to play for this big club in Leeds United. And it's absolute Farker masterclass. And now we're absolutely flying. Yeah. Yes, I enjoyed the Ipswich result. Yeah, I was going to say... Um... It's good to see that you're just kind of remaining level-headed and not letting one result kind of uh, steer you. But no, going to be really interesting with that. I think Tomo might have touched on it. Leicester started really well. Only team left in the EFL from Championship to League Two with a 100% record. I think more testament to how strong the Football League and how competitive Football League is, to be honest. But um, yeah, they're obviously a, a good side. But Leeds, I think now, will almost quite relish the fact that they're a few points behind and just will keep ticking away win by win. Um, and I think you'll you'll slowly see them surge towards the top and maybe end up on on some big, big points with some big, big goals. Yeah, I remember Farker's first full season, I think it was, with Norwich. It was the same as Bielsa's first season. And we Leeds finished in the playoffs and, for, and Norwich won the league. But they didn't start very well. They had a difficult or just that year. And a lot of their wins were like three twos, four threes. And he's that kind of manager. And I think as soon as we get a bit of momentum, which we I feel like we've got behind us now, we still need to get to the end of the month, by the way, because someone might get desperate and chuck in a lazy bid for Nonto or Sinister and all of a sudden it, it changes the picture again. But I just really, I've said this before, the one constant I've said about Leeds so far this season is I love that managerial appointment. Um, and the way that he's conducted himself through August has been absolutely exemplary. And I'm really proud to have him as our manager. And I'm absolutely buzzing to see what kind of results and what kind of run we can go on from here. So I think enough said, Leeds are going to be bang up there. In my opinion, we win the league. OK, and there's actually some football tonight and Leeds are on TV, Loro, uh, away at Salford in the Carabao Cup. Um, Premier League side started to join that competition um, Tom, I'll come on to you with United in a second. Obviously, you must win it last year, but I'm really interested to see, Laurie, from a Leeds point of view, who maybe are just starting to think about their league form and uptick, um, but that competition happening in a game against Salford tonight. What does the Carabao Cup mean to you as a Leeds fan? Do you care about your performance? Would you rather be out of it? Does it give time for your reserves to get minutes? What Just your general thoughts on the competition. Yeah, exactly that. I think... Every season that we've been in it, whether it's been when we were back in the championship and we were going for promotion or whether we're in the Premier League and trying to pick up points every week, I just think with the Carabao Cup, I want to get knocked out playing quite well. Maybe get knocked out on penalties or something at the end. I don't want us to disgrace ourselves, but at the same time, I don't want us having the chance of our players getting injured left, right and centre when we've got important league fixtures at the weekend. And it's a sort of competition that becomes serious at like the quarterfinal stage. So if you're if you're if you're a club that finds yourself in the quarterfinals of that competition, then great. Then it becomes as probably equally as important as maybe your league games. But until then, unless you can sort of um, huff and puff your way there. I'm not interested in the Carabao Cup at all. I think there's a time and a place for it. I think it's a great competition, again, for that club, maybe that mixture of teams in the Premier League that aren't going to go down and aren't going to challenge for Europe and maybe want some silverware. They're the teams I think should go hell for leather at it. But um, in terms of Leeds this season and the last few seasons, really, not for me. Yeah, stuff. And then Tomo, from a United point of view, obviously a lot, a lot more of a, a bigger club um, in regards to, to kind of play a squad and and size. We won the title last year. What's your thoughts on it from a United point of view? Well, it's, it's a good competition because basically if you go ahead and win it, 
you can be like last season, like we did, you can be like unreal, like shows shows a winning mentality. <laughs> United are back, blah, blah, blah. But if you go out in the quarters or the semis, you can sort of sit there and post in the WhatsApp groups or whatever and say, well, it's a Mickey Mouse cup. It doesn't matter anyway. Um, so it's a sort of a win-win for everyone. Um, and like you say, I, I quite enjoy it because it is it is a good a good chance to see the squad players um, play and the young players play. And I completely agree with Lauro. Like once you get to the sort of quarterfinal, semifinal stage, then it's all about winning. Um, so I enjoy the competition. I don't want to see it get cancelled. Like um, I assume your Jurgen Klopp's and your Pep Guardiola's of the world would like would like to see less fixtures. So the Carabao Cup might be what the the cup competition that maybe gets canned. But yeah, like it's 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 a sort of a win win competition for all. I think. And and if you're looking at it from a sort of a player's point of view, if you're a youngster coming through, you love this competition because this is this is the chat and, and in all clubs in Championship, League One, League Two, because it seems like even Championship um, clubs basically play a second string eleven now in the in the early rounds. So, for the players' point of view and sort of squad members' point of view, it's it's good it's good to to have these games. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think Ten Hag will always look fondly on it. He won a trophy. Probably was the difference between United having an okay season and what was probably in the end viewed as a good season. Pep, you say about would can it? Yeah, I get that there's fixture congestion now and would probably be his least favourite. But he's put on record that he loves going and winning that early in the season. Finals in like February, March time, isn't it? It's like a trophy ticked off. Day at Wembley, more silverware, winning mentality. Um, so yeah, I, from a United point of view, especially defending it, you'd want to go and, and win it. Um, Laura, just before we um, move on from that, you said about the quarterfinal stage, about that becoming as important as uh, a league win or uh, a league game. Any kind of thoughts in your head that you'd prefer to win the League Cup rather than go up from the Championship? Or would you go no up way. from the Championship? No, 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 no way. Absolutely FA Cup? No. no. No, I'd rather get promoted and be in the Premier League. Fair enough. Spoken, cool. spoken like a true non-match-going fan. <laughs> Slight dig, but we'll move on from that. Um, How was Old Trafford at the weekend, boys? <laughs> 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 no, come on. We're going to talk about you being a match-going fan now. So we'll move on to the Glovers. Uh, Saturday, as I said, was the uh, Pyramid podcast treble landed with Man United, Leeds and Yeovil winning, which I'd bargain over the last three to five years has been a scarce, scarce set of uh, results. Laura, you went to both fixtures Yeovil had it this weekend, starting on Saturday at home to Tunbridge Angels. Uh, how was it on Saturday? On Saturday, it was good. I think this weekend has summed up the highs and lows of being a football fan. And it is like the biggest highs and the absolute lowest of lows. So we go up on Saturday, like we said last week, I was up in the Porn Sandwich Brigade. We beat Tombridge Angels 2-0. It was the most comfortable win of the season. We played really, really well. Mark Cooper, our manager, came up to the bar after the game. We ended up speaking to him for like half an hour, 45 minutes. I went away buzzing. Some really good insights, some stories from him. Really, really happy. Yesterday morning, got up and travelled to Havant and Waterlooville. They're bottom of the league. on one. They were bottom of the league on one point. Lost every game bar one. Income Yeovil, third in the league. Just had a great result at the weekend. And we get done 4-3. And just to make things worse, 
Charlie Cooper, one of our best centre midfielders, gets sent off, and Matt Worthington, the other midfielder, gets injury. So all of a sudden, you've gone from thinking, right, we're away, we're more comfortable in this league, we're getting used to it, we're going to go on a winning run. We go to Haven and Waterlooville, who are bottom of the league, get done for free. It could have been about 15-3, the amount of chances we conceded. And um, now we've got a selection issue ahead of our next game on Saturday. So uh, disappointing overall. Travelling back, very dejected yesterday. But you did go and follow your team, so applauds for that. Uh, boys, that's probably what we've got time for this week. We'll be back on Thursday. Um, we'll do a preview of all of the uh, Premier League fixtures and the, the top EFL fixtures. We'll obviously be near deadline day, so Tomo will be looking to get the, the top transfer stories as they as we get closer to that. Um, and yeah, we will also preview Yeovil Town's next event and journey. One, two, three.